Hello, I'm John McConnell, the editor of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Today we're going to be talking about the 100th anniversary of the 1918 influenza pandemic. I'm joined by Professor John Oxford from the Blizzard Institute in London, who, with his colleague Douglas Gill, has written a review for The Lancet Infectious Diseases, reflecting on the 100th anniversary of the flu pandemic. Uh, Good afternoon, John. Yes, hi then. Can I just begin by asking you to um, give a sort of very brief um, snapshot overview of the, of the 1918 pandemic? What was the sort of scale of the, um, the disease outbreak? How many people were infected and uh, some notion of the sort of level of mortality? Yeah, well, well, strangely enough, all these years later, 100 years later, there's some debate about the total numbers of people affected in this outbreak. And I go to meetings where people argue about it, but uh, there's a consensus of a huge number of 50 million people around the world dying. And you could estimate maybe 10 times as many as that were seriously ill. In England, for example, the number of deaths would be um, about a quarter of a million. So uh, the biggest outbreak of any infectious disease I think the world's ever known. Right. Well, those really are remarkable figures. So 100 years on, how do you think we would manage a similar pandemic now, given the advances in diagnosis and, and prevention and, uh, and treatment over the last century? Well, I think here we can be pretty optimistic, actually. And we've had time to think about the 1918. I think the 1918 pandemic has stimulated our interests as virologists. It's certainly stimulated mine. And I think public health specialists as well have been, you know, grasping the figures and saying, well, we can't have this happen again. And I think that sort of thing has stimulated everyone. It stimulated the World Health Organization to persuade countries like our own uh, to make a government plan. And the government in its turn has persuaded companies and groups around the country also to have a plan. So that's very good news. So I think in a short way, I think we're much better situated than we were in 1918. It took them completely unawares. And of course, half the medical and nursing faculty was not in England anywhere. They're on the Western Front. So there were some huge gaps in, the, in, in any way that one could prepare for this. And we would, that would not happen again. Good plans now, even good stockpiles of antiviral drugs like Tamiflu and Relenza. Some vaccines are stockpiled, antibiotics are stockpiled, and, and so on. So not a bad situation. So in in your review, you um, reflect on why it's uh, worth continuing to study the 1918 pandemic and what what we can learn by continuing that study. So could you give us a sort of some idea of the the worth, the value of continuing to study the the pandemic from 100 years ago? Well, I think the first thing is it does continually. I think we all need, you get, we get weary, don't you, of all kinds of things. And um, you can weary yourself in planning and all these other things. So to have someone all the time kicking you, say, well, what about 1918 then? I think does help. It helps me. And I'm interested in 1918. So I think that in the background helps. And there's some wonderful discoveries that have been made. Some wonderful work has gone on with 1918. I mean, the complete virus has been uh, synthesized. And that itself has stimulated a lot of work. And ask questions that can be asked for other viruses, like, you know, how did that virus kill? How, how did it kill? Why did so many people die? Are they commemorated? What about the families? What's, what's the great repercussions on this? So I think the continuing work, strangely enough, actually, is helping us um, in our modern terms deal with potential pandemics. And, and there are some viruses around, like bird flu, H5N1, which is there all the time in places like Egypt, Southeast Asia, and so on. They're all the time killing people slowly. And the question is, 
will they turn into pandemic viruses? And in this review, we deal with some amazing experiments. They're controversial experiments, but they have been done called gain of function. And those authors in the United States and also in Holland have taken the bird flu, H5N1, and deliberately mutated it to see if they can, in the laboratory, get it to spread from animal to animal. Because at the moment, it's sitting there in Egypt and Southeast Asia, but not spreading very much. And so you can ask the question, well, if it's a pre-pandemic thing, is it really going to take off? And if it's not going to take off, why not? How many mutations will it need before it does take off and spread from person to person? Those sorts of questions have come up from the 1918, and they're being answered now with bird flu, which could turn into a pandemic virus. Can I finish by asking you about your assessment of worldwide preparedness for a future pandemic? And I'm I'm thinking particularly here of surveillance. Um, If we look at the flu pandemic that occurred in 2009, then perhaps the world was a little bit lucky, is that it started in a part of the world where the surveillance was quite good. Uh, and it was detected quite early. But what do you think might happen if there was a new pandemic strain was to arise in parts of the world, say, sub-Saharan Africa, where the, the level of surveillance is, is not nearly so complete? Well, I think you're dead right. I mean, and WHO acknowledges this, and they're the main force trying to get people organized around the world. They acknowledge themselves that it's extremely difficult. And I can understand why. You know, if I go to Southeast Asia, or go to Africa, they've got other pressing problems which seem to always come in front of flu, and to some extent they should. But nevertheless, um, WHO is still constantly, and I think they should, in persuading every government to get a plan and get some organization going for such an outbreak. And we never know, I think the 1918 story, the 57, 68, and 2009 stories are telling us now, I think, that these pandemics can arise anywhere on this planet. They don't have to arise in Southeast Asia. You've mentioned it yourself. The the last one, 2009, came from in Mexico across the border in the United States. And we think, we still argue about it, I think, personally, the 1918, the biggest one of all, came from Europe. So um, we're not too sure where the next one's going to come from. And what these studies are telling us, it could come anywhere. And so it would be to all our benefits, I think, to help countries where the surveillance is very low or poor, to help them to get the surveillance up, and that will help us. Thank you very much, John. Obviously, um, sharing information is, is absolutely key to our um, preparedness. Yeah, a scientific community should be sharing data. I think it wants to. It just needs to maybe get the extra finance or something to, to get it going, so that will be a wonderful world. And I'm joined by Jeff Taubenberger from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Can I begin by asking you about your involvement with reconstructing the viral strain that caused the 1918 pandemic? You played um, a major role in sort of bringing this virus back to life. Could you explain briefly what were your objectives in doing this and how you and your colleagues went about it? Yes. So my laboratory in the mid-1990s started a project to try to obtain sequences of the virus that caused the pandemic in 1918 by finding fragments of the viral RNA still preserved in autopsy tissues of victims that had died at that point about 80 years prior. And at the time, in 1995, I was not at the National Institutes of Health, but uh, at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, which had a large tissue collection going back uh, over 100 years. And my group uh, had developed a strong interest in doing molecular genetic analysis of 
these kind of typical formal and fixed paraffin-embedded tissue samples that pathologists generally deal with to help make modern diagnoses, that is, uh, translocations in leukemias and lymphomas and sarcomas or gene rearrangements for clonality in lymphomas or infectious disease diagnosis, et cetera. So um, we had the idea that it might be possible to extend this kind of observation backward in time to highlight not only the utility of these new techniques, but to highlight the utility of having a collection of human tissue samples of interesting diseases going back uh, into a large archive. So they, they came together with the idea of studying the 1918 flu. And so the initial positive cases were U.S. soldiers that died in training camps in the fall of 1918. And then that work was expanded to find positive material uh, from other locations, uh, including post-mortem autopsy collections from uh, the Royal London Hospital. And then also uh, to Dr. Johan Holten, who was able to uniquely help us contribute samples of a frozen body that had been uh, entombed in the permafrost in northern Alaska uh, in an outbreak in Brevik Mission, Alaska, in 1918. And so having material from multiple sources allowed us to slowly piece together the genome sequence of the virus using, at the time, what were kind of state-of-the-art technology using RT-PCR, very, very tiny fragments. The amount of flu RNA present in this material was unimaginably tiny. We had to really push available technology to get this to work. But uh, ultimately, over about a 10-year period, we were able to generate the complete sequence of the virus, so about 2004 to 2005. At that point, uh, it had also become possible using the new technology of influenza virus rescue or so-called reverse genetics uh, to make influenza viruses from cloned genes in plasmids. And so it became possible to make influenza viruses that expressed one or more of the 1918 genes. And so in a large-scale collaborative project was put together to make viruses containing one or more 1918 genes and then ultimately having been granted permission by the NIH and the CDC to do a, f a full reconstruction of the 1918 virus, which occurred in 2005, initially at the high containment labs at the CDC, and then when I uh, moved my laboratory to my current location here on the NIH campus uh, into a new high containment facility uh, building, uh, we were able to reconstruct the virus here in 2006. So that's the the basic story of how that happened. The, the questions that underlie the original idea were that here was an outbreak that caused tens of millions of deaths, perhaps the worst natural disaster in human history, and yet there was no way to directly study the pathogen responsible. So we thought that if we were to obtain sequences, that those sequences could be used uh, to help understand not only the origin of the virus, but why it was so particularly virulent. And once you'd reconstructed the virus, did you find that it had any unique characteristics that might explain the high mortality of the 1918 pandemic? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. The, the 1918 virus has a number of unique characteristics, but it was not exactly what we predicted. So it turns out that, um, in general, the 1918 virus uh, is very avian influenza-like. That is, it, it has features that it shares with low pathogenicity bird viruses that you would find uh, in ducks and other aquatic waterfowl throughout the world. But it clearly is uh, adapted for human infection and human transmissibility. But what we now know is that the major cause of the virulence of the virus was the expression of this H1 subtype hemagglutinin, 
which is very similar still in a structural and functional way to uh, bird H1 viruses. And we think that ultimately a bird virus was the donor virus of the genes of the 1918 virus that then somehow adapted to humans. And so rather than than there being a mutation unique to the 1918 virus that gave it this pathogenic properties, we think that it simply inherited an avian-like H1 virus that is pathogenic in mammals. Um, and we, we now know that currently circulating H1 viruses from birds share these pathogenic features with the 1918 virus, uh, but other subtypes of avian influenza do as well, H6, H7, H10, and H15 subtypes out of the 16 total that could circulate. And so we think that we're at potential risk of future pandemics that share features with 1918 should an avian-like virus with one of those hemagglutinin subtypes adapt to humans. And there is currently an outbreak of a bird H7 virus in China that has been associated with a high case fatality rate of about 25% or so uh, circulating since 2013. And that virus expresses a subtype H7 that is on our list of what we would call um, agents that we think have pandemic potential. So that's uh, something that we're looking at closely. So there's been quite a lot of research done that, uh, on manipulating various flu virus strains in order to try and understand their pandemic potential. Where do you stand on the, the, the competing risks and benefits of this so-called gain-of-function research? So-called gain-of-function research uh, ha has been, as you are aware, controversial in the last few years. But it's very important to understand that for what I would call high-consequence pathogens, that is, viruses like these avian strains that are causing small outbreaks in humans that have the potential to become pandemics, or other, other classes of virus, not just influenza, say coronaviruses that have led to SARS and MERS, uh, other examples like that, that these are zoonotic infections in which viruses adapted to another animal species somehow adapt to humans. And this is an ongoing issue. Clearly, many of the infections that are human infections have ultimately derived from other animal species, HIV, of course, but uh, bacterial infections as well. And so understanding the rules, so to speak, of how a virus can learn to adapt to humans is critically important. Uh, we know that the 1918 virus and pandemics for hundreds of years have been occurring in nature, and clearly this process does occur naturally. It's, it's not something that seems to um, occur very easily, but it does occur uh, with some regularity so that there are about three pandemics per century going back at least 500 years. So we feel very confident that we're at risk of a new pandemic forming. Every time a pandemic occurs in the last 100 years for which we now have genetic information from 1918, the 1957, 1968, and 2009 pandemics, we are expanding our understanding of how these uh, viruses adapt and cause pandemics and, and why they cause more disease. And I think this information is critically important. Of course, this work has to be done very carefully in uh, high containment labs with much oversight. Uh, we want to make sure that experiments are done safely, not only for the people doing the experiments, but that are safe so that there is no risk for the population in general. But, you know, I think that uh, in the absence of of doing this kind of work, we're actually doing a huge public health disservice by not trying to mitigate or prevent a future pandemic. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's a line that is crossed. You know, people doing offensive biowarfare, bioweapons research, or bioterrorist research, of course, is 
unthinkable and unconscionable and, uh, and needs to be prevented or stopped, but that legitimate scientists asking legitimate public health questions about how we could prevent or um, at least mitigate the impact of a future zoonotic infection are critically important. So thinking about the inevitability of a, of a future flu pandemic, do you think the world is prepared to face a pandemic on the scale of the one of 100 years ago? I think, unfortunately, we are clearly um, not prepared to face a new pandemic. We were, in a sense, uh, quite lucky that the 2009 pandemic was so comparatively mild. Obviously, uh, we don't want to ever see another pandemic occur. But here's the current situation that we're at, is that we are not able to predict with any confidence when a new pandemic will occur, uh, where it will occur, what subtype it will be, and how virulent it will be. We can only react to pandemics that do occur. We clearly have not been doing such a good job in terms of controlling influenza through our seasonal vaccine program. Some years are better matches than others, but you know we're using um, vaccine technology from 50, 60 years ago, and I think it's time to rethink the strategy. Uh, clearly, as a community, we need to do better in terms of preparing for seasonal flu, but then ultimately to pandemic flu. And I think the direction that uh, our institute director, Dr. Fauci, has uh, now been pushing very strongly on is the idea of a universal influenza vaccine strategy, uh, one in which we would have broader protection. And this could be defined in different ways. But for example, as an initial step, if you could have a vaccine that would provide breadth of protection such that you would not need to be vaccinated every year uh, to give you protection against seasonal flu, perhaps every five or 10 years, like a tetanus booster, for example, that would already be a great improvement in public health. If we could expand that to a vaccine strategy that would provide protection against other novel strains of influenza, like those seen in animals, uh, to provide, in a sense, pre-pandemic protection, that would be also a, a great advance. There are a number of ideas and a number of groups who are actively working on them, including my laboratory. It's too early yet to understand how preclinical data in animals will translate to uh, results in humans, but uh, phase one studies and early phase two studies are beginning from some candidates. I have a candidate vaccine that's going to have a phase one study begin in about a year, and we will lead to hopefully a phase two efficacy studies thereafter. It's unclear 